And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. What is God like? So we come to church, we sing songs, we read the Bible, we pray all in pursuit of God. But what's he like? I think if you went out on the streets of Purcellville, which are just teeming with people on a Sunday afternoon, and asked people what God is like, you'd probably get just as many definitions as you got people to talk to you. Because often we define God the way we like to think of him. So if you've lived a somewhat comfortable life, you probably tend to think of God as benign, benevolent, sort of like Santa Claus. But if you've struggled with injustice and suffering in your life, you might think of God as more distant, even cruel, perhaps. So what is he like? It's an all-important question. A.W. Tozer once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes into your minds when you consider God? Maybe you've heard that old proverb of the blind men and the elephant. There's an elephant and the blind men touch different parts of the elephant to determine what it's like and some determine it's a tree or a rope depending on the the tail or the leg, whatever they're touching in the, the elephant. And the point is that for something like God, religion, uh, we're all kind of blind and we only get partial truths. No one has a full picture. Some would say God is like that. We don't really know what he's like. We all touch different parts of him and therefore going out in the streets of Percival, we all get different definitions for him. Well, the biggest place I think that parable fails is that it eliminates the chance for the elephant to speak. God has spoken. God has revealed himself to blind people, to us. He hasn't let us flail about with our own definitions of what we like or don't like about him. He has revealed what he's like in his word. And there's really no better place... Um, all of the Bible is good for this, but one of the best places to go in God's word to see what he's like and what he's revealed of himself is in his law, the Ten Commandments. 
So as a church, we're over halfway through considering these commandments, and we've arrived this morning at the seventh. You shall not commit adultery. God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them into the wilderness toward the promised land of Canaan. And now at Mount Sinai, he gives them his law. And in doing so, he's revealing what he's like. Israel's learning who this God, this Yahweh, his personal name, his covenant-keeping name, who he is. Who's this one who has covenanted to love them and redeem them and restore them? So in the passage Ashley just read for us, let's focus on verse 14 and see three truths this morning. First, God is faithful. Second, we aren't. And third, there's hope. God's faithful, we aren't, there's hope. So first, God is faithful. We're going to keep reiterating this every week as long as we're in the law. So remember the Trinitarian approach to the law that we've taken. So as Christians, we come to this law of God to see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. First, we come to see the character of God the Father, what he's like, his character, his attributes. Second, we come to see the fulfillment of God the Son, how he took the penalty for law-breaking that each of us had incurred and died in our place. This law, this very law, is an obstacle to our salvation because we can never keep it. But it's also the vehicle by which Jesus has saved us. He kept it perfectly and then gave us his perfect law-keeping status. That's how we're saved. So we come to see the character of God the Father, the fulfillment of God the Son, and finally we come to the law to see the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So as those who have been made alive in Christ, made perfectly acceptable to God by the sacrifice of his Son, we are now, it it always amazes me, we are not indwelled by the very Spirit of God. We have new hearts, the desire to follow him. And so this law now guides us to know the will of our wonderful Father. We're no longer under the law. We're no longer under the punishment of the law, but it's a guide for us to live for the King. So, as we now come to the seventh commandment, as you take a look at it, you shall not commit adultery, I wonder if you ever looked at those five words and thought, how does this commandment reveal God to me? I wouldn't be surprised if you, like me, have come to this commandment in the past and thought, oh, yeah, the the Christian sexual ethic. I've heard this many times. Or, Or even there goes God again, telling me what I should or should not do with my body. Christians, sometimes rightfully so, have have been labeled as prudish about the topic of sexuality, thinking of it at times more as a necessary evil than something to be enjoyed to the glory of God. But beyond all those thoughts, have you ever come to this commandment and thought, how does this commandment forbidding adultery show me what God is like? It does. How? God values faithfulness in our marriage covenants as men and women, the vows we've made to our spouses, because he is faithful to his covenant. 
I mean, think, think about what we've seen so far in the 20 chapters we've read in Exodus. So back in chapter 2, we, we saw the people of Israel cry for help, and we saw that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. In chapter 6, God says to Moses, I established my covenant. I have remembered my covenant. I will bring you out. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In chapter 15, after that crazy deliverance at the Red Sea, God's people break out in the hymn of thankful praise and they sing about God's faithful, covenant-keeping, steadfast love. They say, you, Lord, have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. And as we see him reference this covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we're reminded that the story of God's responding to his people, to the cry for deliverance, remembering his covenant, goes back far before Exodus came around. Back in Genesis 15, God promised Abraham his people would be enslaved for 400 years. But God would deliver them. This was all God's plan to redeem his people, to enter into covenant with them, to be their God. He says to Abraham in Genesis, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations as long as they deserve it. No, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. God's love for his people is steadfast. His commitment to his people never wavers, never fails. Church, the character of God revealed in this seventh commandment is that he has promised to love his people and he's faithful to that promise. His love endures. We sang that earlier, right? Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. And so, to illustrate this kind of love throughout the Old Testament, we see this kind of love, this divine covenant love between Yahweh and his people compared to the love a husband has for his wife. So in the same way that a husband loves his wife and makes a covenant with her, so God has covenanted to love his people. As his possession, his people need never suspect he will forget them, neglect them, cheat on them, cease to love them. God's love will be faithful, steadfast, It won't decrease, it won't increase, it will be unchanging like his character is. And so he calls his people to be faithful as well. He says, you shall not commit adultery because of who I am. I am faithful. But there's a problem. We aren't. That's our second point. 
See, just as God's love for his people is compared to a husband's love for his wife, so God's people, as they stray from him, are often illustrated as an unfaithful wife. So later this afternoon, you can read all of Ezekiel chapter 16. It's a hard read. In there, God says to his people, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. God had saved his people, but they had turned away. Tempted to love other gods instead of their covenant king, it was like they were cheating on their husband, leaving him for someone else. This is all of us in our sin. Yet, yet God is a faithful husband who pursues his unfaithful wife. He's jealous for our love. We've seen that already in the Ten Commandments, right? He's a jealous God. And he pursues us in love, and he's so gracious to bring us back. Do you remember what Angela read for us earlier from the prophet Hosea? Hosea was this prophet used by God to do something really hard, to physically portray what God's faithful love looked like for Israel, for his unfaithful people, by taking for himself an unfaithful wife, pursuing her wooing her, bringing her back when she had left for another. That's what God's done for us. When we had strayed, he did not fail. He will keep his covenant promises to redeem his people, to bring us out of sin, to give us new life. All right. Great. So what does all of that have to do with our marriages, with our sexuality? Church, it has everything to do with it. God has designed marriage and sex in marriage to picture his love for us. It's not the other way around. It wasn't like God was thinking of a good way to love his people one day. Maybe he's getting ready to preach a sermon and he's like, what what would be a good model for? Oh, marriage. That would be a good model for how to communicate my love. No. No, God created marriage, this love between a man and a woman, this covenant faithfulness for life to picture his love. Marriage is about God. And so adultery is about God too. Adultery lies about the character of God. Breaking the covenant of marriage lies about God's faithfulness to his covenant. See, family, God has created sexual desire, sexual activity, and placed it within covenant, the covenant of marriage, to reflect what he's like. That's what sex is for. This commandment not to commit adultery is not just about morality for morality's sake, about being a good Christian kid, right? It's about God's character. It's about God's design for our fulfillment. Sex is for covenant. I love how Tim Keller puts it. 
the pastor in New York City, he says, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less than that. Keller concludes, so according to the Bible, a covenant is necessary for sex. That's why God forbids sex outside of marriage. Not because he's a prude, but because that would be taking the gift of intimacy he's given this covenant relationship and separating it from any kind of trust, any kind of commitment, any kind of vulnerability that that sex is meant to symbolize. Sex only makes sense in the context of commitment where there's security and vulnerability and trust and exclusivity. Physical intimacy in marriage is an expression of spiritual intimacy. Two becoming one. And all of this is to picture God's love. How God has given of himself to us in covenant. Do you see why this commandment about sex only with your spouse is such a big deal? It's not just about your marriage lasting. It's not just about how people will perceive your marriage as being healthy or on the rocks. It's about God. And as we think about that, as we think about this commandment, we need to admit we so often have fallen short of it broken it. I mean, in the big picture, like Israel in their marriage to God, we have turned to other gods. But specifically to this commandment, our sin has shown up so often in our marriages as we've turned away from our spouses and committed adultery. But hold up. (laughs) Maybe, like we said last week, you again come to this and you're like, well, okay, um, awkward. I've actually never done this. Um, I'm clean here. Let's continue to, you shall not steal next week. But again, sorry, just like last week, I'd point you to Jesus's sermon on this commandment that Stan read for us earlier in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. You've all heard it, right? Multiple times this morning. But I, Jesus, say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, Jesus is not simply concerned with our external compliance with the law, but with our hearts. And so he takes God's law and sort of applies it like a master surgeon's knife to kind of peel open our hearts and show us that we may be really good at living on the outside like we're faithful to our spouses, but in our hearts we cheat. In our minds, we lust, we fantasize. With our digital devices, we consume pornography. We downplay emotional attachments that might be growing between us and the the spouse of another. 
maybe even more broadly, we, we take energy away from the spouse we've covenanted to pursue in order to pursue other things, our own agendas, our jobs, even our kids. We've cheated on our spouses, church. We've committed heart adultery. For all intents and purposes, we've committed sex outside of marriage, outside of covenant. And it's never fulfilled us. We've taken this picture of God's love for us and and made it all about our love for us. We've turned sex from what is designed to be this sort of self-giving love to a self-fulfilling need. We've taken God out of the picture. And, and zooming out even further, whether you're married or not, whether you're going to be married or not, we've all been unfaithful in kind of the broad theological understanding of this commandment. We haven't pursued God. We've loved others above him. We've been unfaithful to our husband. This verse isn't just for the losers who abandon their wives and show up on the tabloids at the grocery store. This is a commandment that shoots into the heart of each one of us. God is faithful, and we're not. But there's hope. That's our final thing to see. See, just like the Old Testament showed God's love for his people in terms of a husband's love for his wife, So the New Testament follows suit and shows the gospel of Christ and his mercy towards sinners as the greatest marriage the world will ever see. So when we, when you and I had strayed from God and sought to fulfill ourselves in in any other lovers available, he sent his son. Jesus came to redeem the straying wife of God. And we all deserve God's wrath for breaking this commandment. Jesus came and perfectly obeyed it. As a single man who never had sex, Jesus never lusted after another man or another woman. Jesus was the perfect, pure servant of God. He wasn't a prude. He was fully satisfied in God. There's a difference. But when Jesus deserved all God's acclaim and all God's praise for his perfect life, Jesus went to the cross. He took on himself all our sin. If you're a Christian, all your lust, all your pornography, all your flirtations, your fancies, your failures to be faithful have all been placed on Christ. Jesus became sin for you. God looked at Jesus, saw your adultery, and damned him for it. And the story wasn't over. When Jesus rose again after three days, he showed he had completed God's salvation plan. He had taken God's full wrath meant for us and had turned it into God's favor towards us. 
He had taken God's full wrath meant for us and turned it into God's favor towards us. We who had strayed after other gods, who had committed adultery in our hearts day after day, were clothed with the beautiful garments of our bridegroom, with the righteousness of Christ. Martin Martin Luther puts it like this. He said, Christ, the rich, noble, and holy bridegroom, takes in marriage this poor, contemptible, and sinful little prostitute, takes away all her evil, and bestows all his goodness upon her. It is no longer possible for sin to overwhelm her, for she is now found in Christ. Church family, Jesus is our perfect husband who will never, ever fail us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to be clear. We are not the ones primarily standing in judgment of your sexual sin. Because we have it too. A bunch of it. No, we understand from God's word that God stands in judgment of your sexual sin. And he will punish you for it. For he is good and faithful and just. He wouldn't be good and faithful and just if he let you get away with it. But by his grace, he's also merciful. And he's provided this way of salvation through Christ so that if you will repent of your sin and believe in what Christ has done for you, you will be saved. You will be given new life. If you have questions about that, talk to me after the service. Talk to people who are playing or reading up here. We're sexual sinners too. And we'd love to tell you this wonderful message of freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And dear church, as those redeemed in Jesus, how can we now take this commandment and use it to follow the will of God? Well, first off, if you're not married this morning, so if you're a child or a teenager, or if you're, you have been married but you're now widowed, or you're a widower or you're divorced, if you experience same-sex attraction and have chosen to remain single to obey God, whatever reason you aren't married or may never be married, I think this commandment should remind each and every one of us not to pursue sex as our highest joy. So everything, everything, seriously, everything in this world will tell you that unless you're somehow exhibiting or exercising your sexuality, you're not really alive. It will tell you that your sexuality equals your identity. But it doesn't. Your identity is so much more important than your sexuality, though your sexuality is so important as well. Why? Because your sexual desire is only an echo that points you to the love of God and your desire for Him. Seek Him. Seek higher joy. If you're a teenager specifically, I I don't blame you at this point if you think this is, again, a bunch of Christian adults trying to take away all your fun. It can seem that way. But I promise that if you seek to explore sex apart from God's design, you're not going to have fun. Ultimately. Fleetingly, yes. But God promises 
you will always come up empty and despairing. And he wants your joy. Pursue him. Talk about these questions. Talk about these questions with your parents. If, if you're an older teen and it's appropriate, talk to people within the church that you respect who are older than you. If God created sex and it's about God, then the church, which is about God, should be the best place to talk about sex. If you're here and you're married, I think the, the application is the most direct for you, right? How might you be tempted to lie about the faithfulness of God to his covenant by being unfaithful to your spouse, specifically in the area of sexual sin. Heart adultery is real. Heart adultery is serious. As Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 5, it takes extreme measures to cut off sexual sin. Are you willing to take those extreme measures? Do you see your propensity to lust as dangerous, or is it just a way to let off steam? Not just talking to husbands, but also wives. Are you willing, not just for the joy of your spouse, but for the glory of God, to seek repentance? Are you willing to come clean and surround yourselves with other sexual sinners redeemed by Christ to help you pursue holiness in this regard? Find greater joy. Husbands, wives, don't let issues like this stew. It was only a click here. It was only a glance there. The more and more sexual sin grows, the more and more ravenous it becomes. There is grace for sexual sinners. But the best place for that grace to be shown is in the light, not the dark. And church family as a whole... Whether you're married or not, whether you will be one, married one day or not, regardless of what your marital status will look like in this life, regardless of whether you get to express your sexuality in this life or not, all of us who belong to Jesus are part of the eternal marriage that earthly marriage just points to. I mean, it's wonderful news. Ultimately, no matter who you are, if you're in Christ, you're not going to miss out on anything. You're a participant in a far more glorious marriage than any you've ever seen. You are in covenant with God through Christ, and your spouse will never fail you. The Bible ends with a wedding, doesn't it? A wedding we're all involved in as Christians. In the chapter 19 of Revelation, we see the church, us, pictured as a bride being prepared for her husband. The Apostle John writes there, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Church, as we gather, grow, and go here in this church, as we persevere in our faith together, as we exhort each other in sin and encourage each other in holiness, as we're trying to persevere towards heaven in our faith, it's like we're linking arms and walking down the aisle. 
And at the end, waiting for us is our faithful bridegroom who will take us to be with him forever. That's what marriage is about. This bridegroom will never fail us. So for the sexually broken here this morning, turn to him. He is your healer. For the sexually unfulfilled, turn to him. He is your greatest desire. For the sexually confused, turn to him. He's your suffering savior. For all of us, turn to him. He is our bridegroom king who's coming back. And when he does, we'll understand completely what our sexuality, what our marriages were all pointing to. All along, they were just pointing us to him. Then we will be fully, finally fulfilled. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we're a bunch of sexual sinners. No one here has not sinned in this regard. And so we confess that this sin reminds us that we are unfaithful to you, our ultimate bridegroom. We confess that we're prone to wander from you, Lord. We confess that we're prone to leave the God, the bridegroom we love. And so in our heart of hearts, we, sh- we, we understand our sin. Forgive us. We come again to recommit our love to you, Jesus. Bind our hearts to you, Savior, King, Bridegroom. Give us greater love for you and come back for us soon, we pray. Amen.